Those classic video games you played as a kid, the ones you swear are masterpieces, have you ever gone back and played them? Are they really as good as you remember, or are you gazing through the rose-tinted glasses of nostalgia? Let's talk about it. Welcome to the pilot episode of The Gaming Companion, the podcast where I rant about all sorts of gaming topics and talk about the latest game releases and theories. I'm Becky, and I recently went back and replayed a game that was a pretty integral part of my childhood, Pokemon Platinum. I have countless memories of spending rainy days curled up in an armchair shiny hunting. I can still clearly remember running around looking for a Swablu, of all things. So I was looking forward to revisiting these memories and maybe creating new ones. While Platinum is a timeless classic and I still I still did enjoy giving another playthrough, it wasn't quite what I remembered it to be. That running through the grass shiny hunting has lost most of its charm, to be honest. And I'm more fond of Dusk on out and that one is so much easier to find. Anyway, the new playthrough got me thinking about nostalgia, what it means, and how it influences what games we like, or maybe don't like, and which ones we decide to buy. Let me share with you what I found. Nowadays, nostalgia is a fairly harmless experience, but it wasn't always so accepted. Turns out, back in 1688, when the term nostalgia was first coined, it was actually considered to be a pretty bad disease, even life-threatening. No one was safe from it either. It affected children, men, women, and the elderly equally. The most common sufferers were, of course, soldiers or people who travelled, and common treatments included leeches, calming herbs such as chamomile, rosemary, and valerian, and even fear tactics. There's an alleged case from 1733 of Russian war commanders burying people alive if they came down with the symptoms of homesickness. Of course, perspectives gradually shifted and treatment slowly changed from fear-based to shame-based, people suffering being told they were weak or not manly enough for society. Oh, delightful stuff, really. The best treatment was, of course, to let the people go after what they were nostalgic for. This didn't really work if what they were wishing for was gone, however. Which is the same for video game nostalgia. None of us can really obtain that same first playthrough feeling because we've already played it. We already have preconceived notions of what we like about it. The issue of nostalgia is what we like about a classic game we're nostalgic about tends to be everything. When I think of my childhood games, I don't remember what I disliked about them. For example, Platinum's weird Pokemon follow feature, in which only a few Pokemon can follow you, and only in Amity Square. I remember loving this feature so much at the time. However, going back, it does become annoying, and not just because the new games do it so much better. The selection method they chose for which Pokemon can follow you is fairly nonsensical. Why those Pokemon? They weren't the most popular. One of the ones you can take with you is Driftloon, and you can't honestly expect me to believe a balloon is at the top of most people's lists. And I thought the same about this feature as a kid, I just didn't remember the issue I had before I went back and revisited the game. It's easy to think positively about the older games because we've played the newer games with all the quality of life bells and whistles they, they come with, and we falsely remember the older games to have at least a few of these features too. The most common example of this is graphics, and there are several memes going around of remembering the feeling of being sucked into a game, and then going back to it when you're older and realising that actually the games look pretty terrible. And this could just be a case of growing up and not being able to imagine yourself in the game world as well, but I'd disagree with that. I know I'm not alone when I say there are several modern games that can captivate attention and draw you into the world. But back on the subject of nostalgia, I myself don't replay the games that I know are old and rarely graphically bad if I want to hold on to the positive memories about the game. I feel like this is more true of the early 3D games especially. 
I'm hesitant to replay Zelda Twilight Princess because I think the graphics will shock me and put me off, which doesn't make much sense because I've been playing Wind Waker lately with no problem. But that's not one of the ones I played as a kid, so I, I don't have any of these notions that, oh, I thought the graphics were so much better, so it's less shocking. Graphics isn't something I noticed being an issue with Pokemon Platinum, as the pixel artwork hasn't really become outdated. And since the modern games don't use the same 2D art style, and there was such a big leap between the end of the DS Pokemon era and the start of the 3DS era, there's not much of a comparison between them. Perhaps this is why I replayed Platinum in the first place. I knew going into it the graphics wouldn't bother me, so I figured I was safe from being shocked out of my nostalgia. I was not safe. While outdated graphics are the most heard about, there are definitely other ways to run afoul of nostalgia. But is remembering a game wrong and thinking of it overly positively really that important? Why not let people like what they like? Hold whatever memories they want to. Does talking about nostalgia even matter? Well, it does, for several reasons. First, looking at whether we like a game for the right reasons or not is important when making buying decisions, especially with game prices going up and it just not being feasible spending 70 bucks on every new game coming out when you want to eat as well. If we're buying a game based on our nostalgia of similar games, we increase the risk of not liking it, especially if the new game doesn't actually fit in with our nostalgia and it was just a marketing gimmick. Continually buying games that don't interest us is one of the ways burnout can creep up on us, and I'm not talking about the fun racing game burnout either. It can make you feel like a fake gamer, like you've grown out of the hobby, which just isn't the case most of the time. Second, if you're a game dev or you're in charge of any kind of marketing decisions, it's important to pinpoint exactly what people like about the genre, as opposed to what they find nostalgic. Knowing what's nostalgic and what's an actual draw to a genre of games can help you with your marketing and avoid drawing in people that might not like a game and drop negative reviews. Going back to the Pokemon example, if you are making a similar monster collection game, but you don't have many of the features the old Pokemon games do, I would think carefully about targeting the Pokemon nostalgia when you're marketing your game, because you're going to get people expecting to be playing a Pokemon game, and it's not going to be that, so they'll probably be pretty disappointed. So you're probably thinking of the games you used to play that you know you have nostalgic memories for. How do you know if they were actually good, or you just had trash tastes as a kid? I did myself. How do you look past your nostalgia to see the game for what it truly is? As I did, it's good to revisit these games to see how they hold up. Pokemon Platinum was not the only game I revisited, it was just the one I still had positive feelings for afterwards. One notable game that I did go revisit was one of my old GameCube games, Scooby-Doo Night of a Hundred Frights. And I remember loving the game so much as a kid. I revisited it and absolutely hated it. I got all the way to the last boss fight and had to rage quit the game because it was that infuriating. The controls were bad, the arena setup was awful, even Scooby's lovable voice grated on me at the end. And this is probably proof that kids do just have awful taste and can put up with a lot of nonsense. And this goes to show revisiting the game isn't the best way of getting around nostalgia to see if a game is really good, since we have an interesting tendency of putting up with the bad stuff for the sake of memories, hence why it took me until almost the end of that Scooby-Doo game before I had to quit. Another thing you can try to see how good a game truly is, is to see how much it influenced everything else. Let's take Minecraft as an example. It set off a massive trend of open-world survival crafting games, a trend that is still going and still sees new releases every day. 
But it's not just games that were inspired by Minecraft that you have to consider, but also games that benefited from its popularity. Like Terraria, for example. It was released around the same time, it's not the same game at all, but it still gets new players to this day by people comparing it to Minecraft. Side note, I personally believe getting anyone to play Terraria by calling it a 2D Minecraft is just asking for them to hate it, but that's a completely irrelevant topic. This distinction in whether something was inspired by something or it just benefited from it brings up an interesting point about nostalgia, and I saw a ton of conflicts over this in my research, and that's the time frame of nostalgia. At what point do you say you are nostalgic over a game rather than you just enjoy the genre or story? And it depends on the person, how old they are, what age they got into gaming, how involved in gaming they are. Obviously someone who doesn't play as many games will be a lot more impacted by it. Which is why this is probably the most awkward topic I could have chosen for my inaugural podcast episode. My perspective, using Minecraft Terraria as an example... While it's accurate to say some parts of Terraria might have been inspired by Minecraft, I wouldn't agree that ReLogic were targeting the nostalgia of Minecraft players at all, since they came out around the same time. No one had even developed a nostalgia for Minecraft yet. Instead, they were targeting people's current love for Minecraft. Because inspiration is not necessarily the same thing as targeting nostalgia. But back to my main point on how to tell if a game is really good or not. The most effective way of knowing if a game is truly as good as you thought it is, is to ask other people. You do have to be careful with who you ask, because you will run into a few people who have a similar nostalgia to you, and they'll also say it's good. The people you really want to ask are the ones who have never played the game before. Maybe even the ones who've never even heard of it. Get them to try it out, and it might be an enlightening experience for you. While it's not a very old game, I have a lot of nostalgia tied up in Bloodborne. It was my first FromSoft game, and there was a lot going on at the time I first played it, so it made quite an impact on me. Watching other people play it is both very fascinating and disturbing. I've played it recently myself, but as I said, replaying these games doesn't work that well. But watching other people hate on it is very effective. After looking at nostalgia for a bit, I started looking at marketing tactics and how publishers target this nostalgia when they're selling games. The most obvious is game collections, which is games bundled together, usually on the same disc or cartridge. A few collections are also remakes and they're changed a little to better suit the console they're being re-released on, but sometimes it is just a port, and there are tons of examples of game collections. The Uncharted collection, Assassin's Creed, Spyro, uh, Borderlands and Halo, just to name a few. Most of the time it's a pretty effective way of getting people to rebuy the games they played a few years ago and can't replay again for whatever reason. Maybe they want new controls, maybe they no longer have the copy or console they originally played on. Unfortunately, there are some examples where game collections can go wrong. Take, for instance, the Final Fantasy Pixel Remaster, another example of a game collection that did have updated graphics and audio. Everyone seemed to be pretty hyped about it. Until they saw the price tag. 80 bucks for just the games itself which was 100 bucks after shipping and taxes if you wanted the physical version. And it caused a bit of an outcry among Final Fantasy fans, especially among the people who wanted the collector's edition with a limited run physical items, which cost about 300. Of course, this collection did have the second problem of it being completely sold out when most people got past the price tag or even woke up 
since its collection was shadow released during the middle of the night in the US for some strange marketing reason I don't understand. However, the Final Fantasy Pixel Remaster does bring up another marketing technique, game remakes and remasters. Just to recap, remakes are built from the ground up with a brand new engine. Sometimes they do have story and gameplay changes like Final Fantasy VII Remake, but not always. Remasters are mostly just updates to make games look pretty on a new console, but they more or less run on the same code. While this information may not seem relevant, it is an interesting distinction from a nostalgic perspective. Remember from before, when I was discussing the ways you can combat nostalgia? One of those being revisiting the game. In my opinion, it's much harder to mess up a remaster nostalgically, since the code and the gameplay is the same. Of course, this does mean a remaster is likely to have a worse response to it, since it's using an outdated code and people will go back, play it, and realise the game isn't quite what they remembered. Remakes are tricky. It has a new art style, and sometimes this art style is too different and it doesn't have quite the same emphasis on nostalgia that remasters do. Of course, both remakes and remasters can be good or terrible, regardless of how many changes the devs make to the code. Moreover, even the industry itself messes up the nomenclature sometimes. And there's no greater example of this than the Metroid Prime remaster. And for one good reason, the care put behind enhancing the game makes it feel more like a remake than a remaster. And there are even a few YouTube videos debating the differences between Remake and Remaster and how Metroid Prime fits into it. But it's still just a remaster, the code is unchanged. Metro Studios straight up ported the old code to the Switch and just made all the changes to the graphics. Metroid Prime Remaster is an excellent example of nostalgia bait done right. It's the same game the old one was, but with all the bells and whistles people expect from a more modern game. Unfortunately, there are a few examples of remakes that don't quite scratch that nostalgic itch as well, regardless of their quality. Like I said, remakes are a lot harder to get right than remasters. The first example is unfortunately the Resident Evil 4 remake, and not because it's a bad game or even a failed remake. The care put into recreating this game is just as impressive, if not more so, than the work put into the Metroid Prime remaster. It received overwhelmingly positive feedback from players and critics alike. The people who hated it most were the nostalgia baities. And you don't have to take my word for this, a good chunk of the negative reviews on Steam all say the original was better. And yes, this isn't really a problem. People can have their own opinions on the game. Where it becomes an issue is the response to the people who worked on it. At least one voice actor who worked on the game had to remove themselves from social media due to being attacked for their role in the game purely because her voice didn't fit into the nostalgic look those players had. That's why it's important to know when we need to distance ourselves from our memories of a game and when to look forward and appreciate new entries into a series. Another example of a remake gone wrong is Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. And this one was very much anticipated before it was even announced, since Game Freak has made it clear they're remaking all of the games from the older generations. Unfortunately, the remake got a bad response to it just from the trailers, because the art style didn't match what people expected Pokemon games to look like, or even what the old Diamond and Pearl games looked like. In my opinion, the art style did match the tone established in the original Diamond Pearl games with a focus on cutesy Pokemon, if not necessarily matching the look of the original games. However, this response to the trailers is interesting in hindsight and for the context of nostalgia. Because it really shows what happens when you mess up someone's memory of the game. 
Anyway, the game released and then everyone rallied cried it because it was, in a word, lazy, but that is a different topic. However, it does bring up another interesting game that came out about the same time as Brilliant Diamond Shining Pearl, and that's Pokemon Arceus. Now, this isn't a remake or a remaster at all, but I think it's important to address here anyway because it's another example of a game that relied at least somewhat on nostalgia for its release. Arceus, like Brilliant Diamond Shining Pearl, focused on the audience of the original games. If you're not familiar, Pokemon Arceus is a brand new retelling of the lore surrounding the OG Diamond Pearl, the cinema of the past. It is officially classed as a mainline game, but it is so completely different that I personally see it as more of a spin-off. As a bit of a tangent, Pokemon uses spin-offs like this a lot, probably more than any other major IP. I wouldn't say it's too deliberately target nostalgia, with the exception of Arceus, but they're definitely targeting as many game genres as possible with Mystery Dungeon, Ranger, Conquest. And these spin-offs get their own dedicated fans and then sequels. Sequels being another great way for the game industry to target nostalgia. This is a lot more relevant when there's a significant length of time between the entries in the series. Take Arceus for example, with almost two decades of time between Diamond Pearl and Arceus, it's definitely capitalising a little bit on the nostalgia from the original games. And there are several more examples of sequels revitalising an old IP. For example, Armored Core 6, which was announced more than a decade after Armored Core 5. And it got a lot of people talking about and sharing their memories of the OG games. This is a great example of how nostalgia can keep a series alive. It's a relatively unknown series, no one is really playing or talking about the old games anymore. But this new release has been hyped up by people after the nostalgia. And that hype is going on to affect Soulsborne fans who have never heard about Armored Core before, but are looking for another Souls-like entry. I'm personally one of these people who have never heard of Armored Core, but I'm not so sure it really has the same essence as Soulsborne's. I'll likely get it after the reviews are on sale, but I don't have much hype about it. Another example of a sequel that brought new interest to a series is Professor Layton and the New World of Steam. Unlike Armored Core, there wasn't a decade of time without a sequel. However, the entries between the last actual Layton game, the Asman Legacy, and this sequel consist of a crossover entry with Phoenix Wright and another game that focused solely on Professor Layton's daughter in The Millionaire's Conspiracy. The crossover was a solid game, but it still wasn't a main entry into the series. It's another example of a spin-off. The Millionaire's Conspiracy, on the other hand, was not popular at all, with not many Layton fans being impressed or even interested in a game that didn't have Professor Layton in it. The New World of Steam takes the series back to its roots and reintroduces the much-loved Professor Layton, and I personally have seen a surge of renowned interest in the series, mostly based on the nostalgia of the old games. But I don't believe that every sequel that comes out is necessarily targeting nostalgia. This does go back to my point from before about the time frame of nostalgia, and when you can say that you like the game nostalgically or just for the story. Take Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. I personally wouldn't say that I'm interested in Tears of the Kingdom because I'm after that nostalgic kick from Breath of the Wild. I'm more invested in the story in the same way that someone will watch the second and even third movies of the Lord of the Rings trilogy after they watch the first one. The characters, the world, and the main overarching goal is still there, but it's not nostalgia for the first that's sparking any interest. But then I personally played Breath of the Wild a bit later, so I don't see it as an old enough game to get nostalgic about. 
since nostalgia hits people differently, you might see it in a different way, especially if your first experience with Breath of the Wild was on the Wii U. Now, I mentioned Twilight Princess a little bit before, and I think it's important to bring back up because it's an example of how nostalgia can be a pretty big driving force behind why people ask for remakes or sequels. Take, for example, my complete lack of desire to replay Twilight Princess just because I'm scared the graphics or janky controls will ruin the game for me. A remake would probably fix this, so long as it's a good remake and not brilliant diamond levels of bad. Anyway, that's the most major marketing techniques. But of course, it's not always quite as obvious as full-blown games. Sometimes it's little small things integrated into the games themselves. Even into games that don't seem to have anything to do with a game you're nostalgic for. And there are plenty of examples of this. The most common are easter eggs and references, and overall game aesthetics like the art style or music. Easter eggs are a very common addition into games, and there are way too many to list here, but one of my favourites is FromSoft's character Patches. If you've played any Soulsborne game, you've probably heard of him. If not, well, I'll let you fall off that cliff by yourself. Related to Easter eggs is references to outside of the gaming world, to popular TV series, movies, books. One of my personal favourites is references to H.P. Lovecraft's works. This is quite a popular favourite, with Eldritch Horrors being a frequent addition into games. Finally, we have aesthetics and music. Again, there are too many games to list. For a very obvious example of all these things, think of Cuphead. This is probably the best example of the game that makes full use of nostalgia to get people to play it. It looks exactly like you would expect an old-style cartoon to play. Now, all these examples are proof that nostalgia isn't necessarily a bad thing. But, in my opinion, we can get so distracted taking another look at something from the past that we forget to focus on original works. Sometimes we even forget to ask if something is even worth being remade, or if it's better just to let something go. And it does have the potential to get out of hand. Though a lot of the remakes I've mentioned here have been positive, there is definitely a risk of stagnation if we keep going back to our childhood favourites. There's a delicate balance between too much and too little when it comes to nostalgia, and it's definitely possible to create a game that offers a glimpse back at the past while still innovating in its genre. But tell me your own thoughts on this. If you're listening to this on YouTube, drop a comment and tell me your own experience with nostalgia, what games you're looking forward to, and how you see the industry developing. If you're listening to this elsewhere, you can tag me on Twitter, at RowanIsGaming, or you can send me an email at thegamingcompanionpod at gmail.com. In the next few episodes, I'm going to be discussing even more game theories. Until then, thanks for tuning in to The Gaming Companion.